From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting, though, also talking about health care and concerns once again about the length of time patients are being made to wait, Many in many cases when they have been referred to a specialist. And Kevin McLeod is joining us once again. Dr. McLeod is an internal medicine specialist at Lionsgate Hospital. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Jill, happy to, although I, I think the groundhog also said, you know, there's six more months of waiting for patients. It wasn't just the winter. Yes, six more months. Yeah, not weeks in that sense. Absolutely. Uh, Well, I wanted to talk to you. You've been putting out some information, as you often do, uh, on social media. And one of the the things that you put out that certainly is getting a lot of attention is uh, that you wrote since Monday, and you, you wrote this just a couple of days ago, saying since Monday, I've had 56 new referrals, with many of them urgent. I can't get to urgent patients now outside of weeks. I know I say this over and over, but when the demand far outpaces the capacity, there needs to be a different solution. That number seems pretty staggering. Yeah, I mean, honestly, Jill, it it seems to be growing month after month. Um, You know, those are patients who have potentially gone to the emergency department because they didn't have somewhere else to go or they had a really serious problem and, and now they need that sorted out. So they're, you know, they've been discharged, but they, they need to be seen. There's referrals from urgent care. There's referrals from walk-in clinics, referrals from family doctors, if somebody's lucky enough to have a family doctor. And it, it, it does seem to be growing. There's lots of reasons for that. Our population's getting bigger. You know, we've got you know an aging population. Medical things are more complex than before. We can do more, but it really then behooves us to think outside of the box for how we manage that. Because th- this idea that we're just going to train more people um, isn't a short-term solution. And and patients sitting on a waiting list need a solution now, not. 10 years from now or 12 years from now when somebody's done their training. And and that's why I, I keep putting this out there saying, you know, there are solutions, right? Team-based care is is a solution. Me as the specialist doctor doesn't have to do everything. Um, there's lots of things I could do um, with a team and, and get other team members to, to do certain parts of things, which would free me up to, to then see those more acute things. And when you talk about referrals, and and you kind of touched on this, that it, you can't get to urgent patients now outside of weeks, and, and the places that you just mentioned where people are being referred, when you talk about it, something being urgent, what types of, of cases are cases, and without going into to huge specifics, but to, just to get a sense that, that these are, in fact, urgent cases that somebody has, has been referred for a reason. Uh, how serious, what kind of conditions are we talking about? Well, I think you can break it into three categories, right? There's emergent, which is, hey, I'm in the emergency department having a heart attack or stroke and I need care now. And our system does respond to that fairly well. There's elective, which is, you know, I've, I've had six months of feeling fatigued or I've have had diabetes for two years, but it's not well controlled, you know, that tends to fall into the elective category. But the urgent things, you know, I, I landed in the hospital and I had a, a clot in my arm, um, you know, or a clot in my chest, and I, I need to have that followed up and, you know, sort out why that happened. But, you know, I was in the emergency department, and I only got a week of blood thinner, I better 
be seen urgently so that that doesn't stop so I don't land back in there. So there's, there's a lot of things that would fall into that urgent category. Um, and, and for the patient, a lot of things that may be seen as elective are still urgent. I mean, if, if you know, if my sugars are running really high and that's slowly damaging my heart and kidneys, I don't want that dealt with in six months. I, I kind of want that dealt with in, in a few weeks or six weeks, right? The longer we delay those elective things, um, the more damage that happens. And, and sometimes, you know, something may not seem urgent because we don't know what's going on yet. It, it takes now more than a year to see a, an ear, nose and throat doctor. Well, you know, I've got a change in my voice. That may not mean something. Maybe I got a little module on my vocal cord or something. But what if that's a, what if that's a cancer in my throat? And by the time I see them, it's spread to my liver and other places that's a really big deal and, and fatal outcome for that patient. So the, the delays do have a very big impact on patient outcomes. You have talked in the past as well about physician's assistance and when you talk about having a team and being able to manage it better with a team, is anything happening with that or changing with working to or being able to get to more of a team-based approach? Um, unfortunately, not really. The, the government did make some announcements that they are going to get physician assistance into the emergency departments. That I don't think has happened yet. Um, but there's something where it shouldn't really be complicated, right? I mean, they, we, we need government and the College of Physicians to be in a room together and, and to solve it in a matter of hours, not weeks, months, you know, or years, and just say, how do we get these guys licensed or people licensed? Um, create a regulatory kind of framework. I mean, none of that has to be hugely complicated because we've got British Columbians who've gone to you know, Ontario to train to be physician assistants and they're, they're back here, but they can't work. Um, you know, and, and it, it seems nuts so to me when we, we are so behind in healthcare and there's people who want to work in the system and we desperately can't fill jobs, but then we're, you know, not, bringing people in that are here ready to work. Um, I, I don't, I actually don't, to be totally honest, understand the hang up from government. You know, it, 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 there, there isn't even really money that needs to be directed at that. Like there's so much work and there's so many things that I do that I don't necessarily have to do, but I cost you a lot more in taxes than does a physician assistant for some of those things. Um, that, that work's still getting done. It's just getting done by somebody who's getting burnt out because of the volume of it and who's charging you more money to do that. Right. So, to, I mean, a toll in, in two ways in that it's a it's a, a big pull on dollars, on tax dollars. But like you said as well, if something has spread, if something that maybe is minor but still needs to be looked at and isn't and gets worth, worse, not only uh, the money toll, but a, a toll on, on the patients. Well, it's a, a big toll on the patient, right? Like I, I, I'm a big believer in kind of closing the loop with healthcare and this old idea of, well, if you don't hear from me, everything's okay is, is really kind of bogus for patients, right? So there does need to be some follow-up. So if I've, if I've met a patient and you know, we've gone through a, a kind of an investigation plan and some of those investigations come back and they look quite normal and the big worries, worrisome things we thought about aren't there, you know, I don't necessarily have to be the one that, that sits down with that patient to explain that the ultrasound of their heart's normal. Um, I do need to be the person that sits down with that patient to explain that, hey, you know, your heart function is half normal and we really need to do this, this and this to get it better. 
But there's certain things I can pass off that um, would not diminish the quality of care at all. Um, you know, and it would enhance the quality of care for the people that are sitting on a waiting list, um, you know, trying to shorten those. And and I I think I do a pretty good job trying to manage my waiting list. I can tell you looking over my shoulder right now, I mean, my my waiting list had hit about 400 people and, you know, our our team in the office has really tried to get that down. It's sitting at 218 people, I can can tell you right now. But, you know, you, you get some orthopedic surgeons and others that are are sitting with these waiting lists of hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, I was talking to a urologist the other day who, who said, he, you know, and he's similar age to me in our late forties. And he was kind of joking saying, you know, some of the new referrals now, I almost wonder if I just say no, because I might be retired before I get to, to those patients. And, you know, for, for people to be sitting on a waiting list sometimes now for two or more years is it, that's, that's really crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's that is not the healthcare system I think that anybody envisioned for Canada or wants to see uh, for Canada. You, you talked about the the waitlist and the people. Are there? I mean, at what point do you get to the point where even if you're getting referrals, you have to say no because you know you can't get to that person? Well, Jill, it's a really good question, and and people have asked me that before, and and I'll be honest, I don't have a good answer because. You know, if I see something that, that does need to be seen or is urgent, you know, if I say no, where do I say no to? Do I do I sort of say back to the emergency department, nope, they'll have to come back to emergency? You know, that doesn't really work. Um, you know, that patient often doesn't have somewhere else to go. So we, we all do try to scramble and, you know, then patients feel rushed because, you know, there's just so many people to see in a day. Um, but they're they're very difficult problems to say no to. I mean, if somebody's blood counts are half normal and, and you know they're short of breath walking from their bed to the bathroom, do, do I say no? I'm I'm not going to see that. Um, I mean, that does need to be dealt with in a in a semi urgent way. So we you know we we do try our best, um, but again, it then makes it very very busy. In the early days of my practice, I might have seen you know twelve new patients in a day. Um, I mean, it'd be unusual now not to see 20 new patients in a day. It, it's, there's, you know, and these are complex patients, not a family doctor office. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's very busy. Um, and, but that, that puts a big toll on, on the people working in the system. And unfortunately with that, then we have more and more people who are leaving the system. Um, and, you know, they go do private work or, or Botox or whatever it is because the, the system's kind of chewing them up. And, and having a, a better team-based approach would keep those people in the system um, and just make it more, more manageable. And, and is it specific to what you do as far as the referrals, or is this something that you're seeing not only with internal medicine specialists but other specialists uh, throughout the province? It's everybody. I mean, I, I really think it's everybody. I mean, if you're if you're waiting to see an allergist, it's probably a year. If you're waiting to see ear, nose, and throat, it's it's at least a year. Orthopedics is a couple of years. Um, Dermatology is six months or longer. Um, you know, I mean, it's not it's not unique to internal medicine. Um, you, you know, it, it it's it's right across the board. I mean, you, you know, I I wouldn't be surprised if you open up your phone lines to to people sitting on waiting lists, you know, how long are they waiting? You, you'd see that there's a lot of people waiting a very long time. And, 
and um, you know that that has really dire consequences. And you know, I think it's really important because often when doctors complain, you know, the public thinks, oh, they want more money. I don't think doctors need a penny more money. Like doctors are really well paid, but we need ways to improve efficiency. And and government's not going to be able to come in and improve that efficiency. Um, you know, I, I think the individual doctors can be more efficient if they're given some tools to be able to to hire physician assistants or nurses in their offices and, and those sorts of things. But, but keep it simple. Like, you know, that, like me as an individual physician, I know my patient practice really well. I know what that that patient cohort needs probably better than, than the Ministry of Health in Victoria. And and I can promise you I could improve that efficiency for way less cost than some complicated, um, you know, outside thing that's, that's sort of put into it, right? And don't overpaying me, if I'm really frank about it, to do things that I don't need to be doing. Um, and, and all that you're achieving by, by overpaying me for that is, is burning, you know, and I'm, I don't feel burnt out, but you're burning people like me out and making patients wait longer and longer. So there's, there's way more cost-effective ways to do this that improve the, the quality of care. Well, everyone's favorite topic, isn't it? Taxes going up. And today we are talking about an excise tax hike that is coming to the price of alcohol. And many people are fighting back, at least raising concerns about this, saying it doesn't make a lot of sense to have this tax automatically tied to inflation. Joining me now to talk more about this is Jeff Guignard, Executive Director of Able BC. That's BC's Alliance of Beverage Licensees. Jeff, great to have you back on the program. No, it is my pleasure. Which, I mean, there are so many taxes, I think, when we're talking about alcohol and and other things that people like to enjoy in many cases. Which tax is this? So, you know, as you probably know, I mean, alcohol is already one of the most highly taxed and highly regulated products that's sold in in, uh, in Canada or anywhere else. And and there's some good reasons for that. This particular tax is called an excise tax. It's imposed by the federal government, so the government of Canada, uh, directly on the producer's the, you know, the wineries, the breweries, the distilleries who make alcohol. So that means it's kind of added on the very first step in that value chain. So it goes all the way through. They have to put their costs up, which means the wholesalers are putting their costs up, which means the retailers, pubs, bars, restaurants have to put their costs up now. And I, uh, that's a tough pill to swallow, given uh, that everything else is going up as well, that we have a tax increase simply to make the federal government more money. And that it's tied to inflation. So, and and there is no way that it moves away from that, or it always that's always the formula. Yeah, it's, that's kind of an interesting thing. So, it was left alone for a long time, and it had been set at a static level. And a few years ago, the federal government said, "Okay, you know, it's time to look at this." Which, fair enough. And then they uh, they wanted to have a not have to think about it again. So they said, "Why don't we just tie it to inflation?" And at the time, when inflation was less than two percent, that felt normal. Felt like we could absorb that. So industry was concerned, but it, it wasn't the end of the world. But then with this time of record inflation, the problem is like you, you can't tie it to inflation when we're having historically abnormal inflation any more than you can you know, say there's no cap on it at all. So last year, the, the, the inflationary increase is going to be almost 7% on beer. So we fought, the whole you know, industry got together, we got the federal government to cap it at 2%. This year, it's going to be you know, almost over 4.5% increase. Like there's, there's no need for that. You look around at the hospitality industry, for example, you know, your neighborhood pubs and bars and restaurants, 50% of them, like five, zero percent 
are actually losing money or barely breaking even right now. So it, it doesn't feel like the right time to raise taxes on a struggling industry. So what would it actually look like then for, for a consumer? Say if you're going into a restaurant or a bar and you're buying a bottle of wine, how much of that bottle of wine after this 4.7% excise tax hike comes in on April yeah. 1st, how much of that, of the price, uh, is, it go- is, is it going to be going to taxes? Yeah, so it will vary a bit from product to product, but so I can't give you the specifics, but I will say for an average pint of beer, you're going to find, you know, an extra 25, 50 cents in cases, a case, a buyer or something like that, you'll find it's another dollar or so. It could simply be an extra dollar or something at the, at the, the till, and not every customer is going to notice that necessarily. Some absolutely will. We have people trading down right now when you go to a private liquor store. I mean, people are purchasing the same quantity, but they're shifting to maybe cheaper products because... I mean, they're, uh, they're feeling the pinch of inflation and the affordability issues right now as well. Uh, but when you add all that up, right, a few pennies for this glass and a few dollars for this case across the entire country, you're talking about tens of millions of revenue that goes directly to the federal government that comes out of the back of consumers and our industry. And it's just the wrong time to do that. And and I would imagine it would be difficult as well when you're talking about that. Sure, it doesn't sound like a lot, 25 cents, 50 cents a pint per glass of wine and such, whether you're buying it in a bar or restaurant or from yep. a store. But like you said, this is coming at the same time when so many places are struggling and people are already noticing that things cost more, that the cost of food, Absolutely. the cost of going out has gone up so much. Yeah, well, we see that, you know, even in the, the hospitality industry and the retail industry, customers are spending a little bit less right now. I mean, everyone's gone to the grocery store and seen the price increases, and it, it, it's dramatic over the last several years, right? And it feels like your arms are getting shorter as your pockets are getting deeper some days. So at the end of the day, when you look at, you know, from a, a federal government perspective that's got budgets in the hundreds of millions of dollars, may, maybe this doesn't seem like a significant increase for them. But people on the ground, people who are in our you know, neighborhoods and our communities and the small businesses that are creating jobs across this province, we feel those little tax increases substantially. It's also 4.7% or 4.3%. Imagine if your, your pay went up that much, you would notice it, right? Or imagine if all of your expenses went up that much, you would notice it. So in an industry right now where half of them aren't making money, customers are spending less, we already have bankruptcies gone up 43% in the hospitality industry in the past 10 months. It's a big deal. And this is going to hurt more businesses right now at the moment where we really need support of our government partners. Uh, it seems like it probably won't change. Here we are at February 2nd already, and this is set to go up April 1st. Uh, are your hopes that then at some point down the line, if, if inflation calms down, even if it is still yeah. tied to inflation, it won't be as bad? Well, look, I'm an eternal optimist, and I, I always believe that you, know, if you, if you can be hopeful that sanity will prevail. Uh, last year, we were able to get a last-minute concession from the federal government, and they said, you know what, well, we hear you, get it, it's painful there, we will cap it at 2% for this year. We would like them to not increase it at all, but even if we got back to at least capping it to something more reasonable, industry could have a chance of absorbing that. Otherwise, these cost increases are going to really hurt small producers and small businesses all across Canada. And I think you touched on this, Jeff, but is it is it varied as well if we're talking about beer or wine or spirits? Yeah, it's a complicated calculation. I'm mostly talking about the beer one because it's a number I know in my head right now. But essentially, yeah, the excise tax for all of those products will be going up. Uh, and you pay a different amount of excise on beer than you do on spirits, just based on the um, the level of alcohol, right? I mean, uh, spirits are 40% alcohol, where beer might be only 5%. So the, the, the excise is on that alcohol portion of it. So the cost increase for a bottle of wine or a bottle of spirits will be greater than the cost increase. But all of those are going to go up by over 4% this year. So it's just a... a increasing tax 
at the exact wrong time. It seems as well. I remember uh, it was during the pandemic. It feels like a long time ago. It wasn't that long <laughs> ago, but I remember there was a bit yeah. of a celebration of a victory about how places were buying alcohol and and making yeah. it easier for and, and maybe even evening the playing field a bit. Yeah. D- does something like this, though, kind of wipe that out? Well, it doesn't wipe it out, but it makes us move backwards, right? And it's sometimes I feel like as an advocate for the private liquor industry here in British Columbia, it's two steps forward, you know, two steps back. But our provincial government partner has bent over backwards during the pandemic and introduced wholesale pricing and, you know, helped us build over 2,000 patios across the province to get people outside. And they made improvements to our systems. You could have liquor to go with a takeaway meal. And a lot of those things are really positive and have helped our industry and then our federal government partners who helped with things like wage subsidies now come and say it's time to increase taxes on the very industry that needed you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to support just to get here. I, it's just not logical. I, I don't understand uh, how anybody could think this is a good idea. Uh, I think it's one of those issues that they, you know, they said it that to match with inflation, they wanted to leave it alone. They don't want to have these conversations sometimes, but like, we're, we're still dealing with the consequences of the pandemic and we will be the next few years. So we, we just need to make some smart tax policy here so we don't undo the good work we've done so far. So at this point, is it continuing uh, to have those voices heard and to push to, to bring in or to at least keep it at the 2% cap? Absolutely. You're going to be hearing a lot about this in the next couple of months. And it's frustrating that we as industry associations of all of our different partners now have to spend our scarce resources trying to persuade the federal government to make sense here. But, you know, we have partners from the manufacturing industry and beer and wine and spirits and the hospitality industry. And we are all writing letters to Ottawa. We're on the phone with ministers and some of us will be visiting Ottawa to try and help them understand that this decision is just, you know, if you want to index it to inflation, you know, let's, let's do that a few years from now when inflation gets back under control. But, but right now we need help or both businesses won't be there in the future. Jeff Guignard, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. And uh, we will be waiting. Uh, like you said, we'll be hearing more about this uh, in the coming weeks. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Have a great day. We are taking a look now at a move that will see universal artists no longer featured on TikTok. That platform has pulled music by Universal amid a licensing fight that is ongoing. The license, well, it expired earlier this week. So what does this actually mean? Eric Alper is joining us once again, music publicist and commentator. Eric, thank you so much for being here. No problem. I can answer that very quickly. It means Taylor Swift is not number one in somewhere on this planet. And all it took was an expired licensing agreement <laughs> and, and was, pulling all of the artists. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what happened. Universal started pulling all of their artists, including Taylor Swift, Drake, Olivia Rodrigo, and more, starting at midnight tonight, only two days before music's biggest night at the Grammy Awards over a number of issues. And they're pretty far apart, too. So what are they fighting about? Well... Here's the one thing that I think people should know. It's just how big TikTok is. I mean, it's one of the platforms and one of the main platforms, if you're Generation Z. It's really the the epiculture of of music and news and sports and entertainment. But basically, Universal um, feels that the financial compensation that TikTok is giving their artists and songwriters is low. And maybe they signed a deal a couple of years ago, but now they kind of want to pull some weight around and make sure that the artists are fairly compensated. And one of the other issues is that TikTok loves AI-generated music. It actually doesn't ban 
AI-generated musics on, say, uh, or as much as um, YouTube or Spotify does. Um, and so Universal is thinking, well, every time that somebody plays a song that is AI-generated, that the money goes to some other company, um, Universal doesn't get that money. So it's one less opportunity for some of their artists who are legitimately writing songs. Um, and, you know, they want to make sure that, that, you know, essentially that, TikTok stays the, the, as a safe space for people um, against uh, bullying and harassment. Um, so there's something kind of in it for everybody. But those are pretty much the three big issues that they're far apart on. Hmm. Does that concern you or should we be concerned by the fact that they don't mind or they don't do anything about AI generated music? Um, yeah, to a certain extent, you know, I think it would surprise people to know that almost 25% of the songs that are right now on the Billboard Hot 100 have used artificial intelligence in one form or another. It could be the artist needing help on creating or finishing up a lyric. It could be creating an orchestra of sounds with just the hit of a button. So definitely, I think if you're a musician, you're a little bit worried that your job is going to be taken away. But technology has always been there. Um, in music since the beginning of, of music and recordedness back in like 1910. So I think if you're an artist, yeah, you're a little bit fearful of it, but it's here to stay and it's not going to go away. And while Spotify might have saved the, the music business, um, you know, TikTok doesn't need music. I mean, Universal has come out and said that almost 1% of their yearly revenues are based on TikTok royalties, which doesn't seem like a lot, but it's still in the tens of millions of dollars. TikTok, though, is so big that it doesn't rely on music in order to generate content, in order to get advertising. So while Spotify's engine is music, TikTok it doesn't even feel that way at all. So they could still be, you know, apart in a couple of weeks from now and nobody would even notice on the bottom line. Hmm. So, so it does seem, and like you said, the two sides are pretty far apart because uh, Universal saying that TikTok is trying to be a business that is based with music without paying their fair share. TikTok is saying, well, hold on a second, we've reached agreements with every other label and publisher. So, I mean, who's, who's telling the truth? I think they both are. I, I, I think Universal, because they just happen to be the biggest record label in the world, have a lot of weight that they can pull, and they can actually go and get a better deal based on the fact that they do, in fact, have the biggest artists in the world in Drake and The Weeknd and Justin Bieber and Ariana Grande and, and Taylor Swift, among others. Um, you know, they've got essentially the Beatles, and they've got a number of other artists that are on there. Um, but, you know, nobody wants to to look like the bad person in here. You know, if you're a fan of music and you're on TikTok and you want to essentially use a Taylor Swift song, you don't really care about the reasons why, especially when you're part of a generation that believes that, well, these artists are making too much money anyway. They have enough. And that's the exact same reason that the college kids used to say about Napster and burning CDs and downloading illegal music is that Dave Matthews didn't need another dollar from me. He's already got enough. So it really comes down to, um, you know, the rights holders trying to maximize the potential for revenue and TikTok realizing that they're a business with shareholders um, and that they have to compete as well.
So what happens then if somebody is uploading a video on TikTok and and in the background there is the music from somebody who has is part of the Universal Artists? You won't even be able to find it. That's the thing. Is like you, you the way that TikTok works is that you have to actually um, kind of link the music that's available on TikTok, and you won't find it. If you decide to do a video with a Taylor Swift song in the background, within moments, that video is going to be taken down thanks to the AI technology and the fingerprinting. So it's going to know that you are actually using unauthorized music in your video. So um, people aren't even going to bother doing it. Hmm. And do you think this will have an impact? I've seen stories about younger artists or artists that are using TikTok, 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 and and as a social media platform. It covers all the bases, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Who are using TikTok to get their music out there and to get recognition. Do you think it'll have an impact on that? Yeah, you know, I've I've actually told a number of artists in the last 24 hours that you better be on TikTok right now because that that highway right now is completely open um, for you to try to generate some some content and some hype while, you know, some of the biggest artists in the world aren't on that platform. But if you're a brand new artist, the old school and the old style way of, of, you know, gigging around around Vancouver and Victoria and trying to get an audience and waiting for the record label to come and find you. And then you get a manager, then you get a booking agent, then your video is played on much music. That's all gone. And so these uh, brand new artists that are between the ages of like 12 and 20 can record in their basement of their house or in their bedroom, upload it directly onto Spotify, do a really fun video on TikTok and bypass Every gatekeeper that we've known about for the last 60 years worth of recorded music in the music industry. So it's been a boon to them as well. Um, and, you know, uh, that's, I, I think that that's a, the larger issue, not necessarily with this one, but when the government gets involved with something like TikTok, claiming that they're a, a data scraping company based in China, that was one of the big fears for a lot of these independent artists that finally something comes along that they can go direct to the fan base in a way that nobody's ever seen before and all of a sudden government officials are talking about data scraping these artists don't care they just want to get hurt mm, yeah which uh, is a whole other topic a whole other uh, list of yeah. concerns do you think this is it will they find an agreement or the the license expired and it's done Oh yeah, no, they're gonna they're gonna come to an agreement. My guess is gonna be the next day or so. Um, I just can't believe that with the Grammys coming up on Sunday, that this music won't be available around the world for people. People are just kind of narrow minded and think that this is only going to affect you know people from Canada and the United States. And the fact is that TikTok is one of the world's biggest platform in the entire planet. So it's going to affect people all over the world. And um, you know, getting seen and getting heard is the lifeblood of the music industry whether you're Universal, Spotify, or TikTok. So I think they're going to come to a deal. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.